Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, just uh, something kind of... I remembered uh, an old joke that I heard one time. And uh, the story is that, that, that someone shows up to, to speak at a place and, and there's only one person there. And uh, he says to the, the person who showed up, he says, listen, I'm really glad that you came, but, you know, it's not necessary for you to stick around. You know, you can go home, and, and, uh, but thanks for coming. And he said, no, 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 please, please, go ahead and give your talk. He said, y- you sure? He goes, yeah, yeah, give your talk. So he gets up on the stage by the podium and he gives the whole talk. And then he thanks the guy for, for staying and listening, and, and, and he starts to leave. And the other guy says, where are you going? I'm the next speaker. <laughs> so, so anyway, um, thanks for coming. Um, yeah, uh, there's uh, there's 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 so much going on and so much I, I, I want to share. I just want to begin with um, with with just the, the the tiniest bit on. On Yaakov Avinu, uh, Jacob, our father, and and his and his wives and 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 the children that are that are coming out of this union, because it's um, you know there's so much Torah and there's so much um, there's so much Kabbalah on on all of the interactions and what was going on exactly and all the the unions and um, unifications. That, that were being made, and it's it's very it's very very dramatic. We should know in general, just as kind of an overview, that uh, that there are twelve tribes and there are twelve constellations, and that the ordering of the tribes as they march through the desert um, correlated with the constellations in the heavens. So in other words, you, you have a, a manifestation in terms of the, the tribes of Israel and a microcosm of the, of the universe itself. And the arrangement of the tribes is very, very important. And how they came down into the world and through which, through which mother and, and all the rest. All, all these things are, are, are very, very, very profound. Um, interestingly, the, the, the Medrash says that as Yaakov Avinu was leaving this world, his sons gathered around his, his deathbed, essentially. And, and he said to them, you know, like, how am I going to know that you're going to continue this mission of oneness? And that's when they recited Shema Yisrael. Because remember, Yisrael doesn't just mean the nation of Israel. But Israel was also Israel was also Jacob's name that was given to him. His name was Jacob, and then later on he wrestles with the angel and he's given the name Yisrael. So they said to him, when when he asked them, how, how can I know that you're going to continue with this mission of revealing the oneness of God in this world? They said to him, Shema Yisrael, hear Israel, hear Jacob, our father. Our God, our God is one. And the position that they had around his deathbed at that moment was the position that the tribes would later take through their march in the desert. And interestingly, what was the central 
part of the encampment. In other words, what paralleled Jacob on his deathbed? That was the Ark of the Covenant itself, the Torah itself. And we say, Torah to Emet, that the Torah is the true Torah, and we know that Emet, truth, is that quality of Jacob. Right? Chesed is Abraham, Gvura is Yitzchak, and Emet, or Tiferet, but also Emet is Yaakov. So, so again, these, these parallels. Now, interestingly, just to give us a, a notion of what, what it means that the, the tribes are marching through the desert. Now, we know that the march through the desert from Egypt to Israel is a microcosm of all of human history and stands for going from exile, which is Egypt, to redemption, which is Israel. So this march through the desert is actually a miniature of the history of time. Now with that in mind, listen to the following, something deep. You see, each of the months has a different tribe assigned to it. Now, how do you, how do you order the months? You could do one of two different ways. So one way would be the way the tribes appear on the breastplate of the high priest. And that's, that's how it appears in birth order. But when we correlate the tribes with the months, we don't do it that way. We actually pick it according to how they journeyed through the desert on the way to Israel. So in other words, if you wanted to do it through the birth order, Ruvain would be first. But that's not how they were arranged in the desert itself. Yehuda goes first. So Yehuda correlates with the first month of the year, which is Nisan. Okay? And on and on to the last. But, but here's the point that I'm trying to make. That, that the march through the desert... That our march through the desert, the Jewish people's march through the desert, humanity's march through history, is what's being, is what's being communicated by hooking up the tribes and the months. In other words, two things are going on simultaneously. The passage of time and the journey toward redemption. And that's what we see by correlating the tribes with time, which is the months, and their position of marching through the desert. I hope that's clear. I hope that wasn't too abstract. Okay. So I want to continue on. So with this in mind, I want to visit a passage from uh, Vayetze. And it sounds like if you hear it, the most innocent passage in the entire world. I mean, you can't imagine that anything deep is being communicated here other than a simple fact. So this is chapter 29, and it's, um, I was, yeah, it's chapter 29, and it's verse 16. I read it in English. Lovin had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Now that sounds pretty straightforward, right? 
And of course, the Torah is communicating on so many different levels. It, of course, means exactly that. By the way, they were, they were twins. Um, Leah was born first. And the two other wives of Jacob, Bill and Zilpah, were also half-sisters. They had a different mother. But, but Levin was their father. So all of the um, wives of Jacob were actually sisters in, in one, one form or another. Um, but let's revisit this. Jacob had, uh, rather, Levin had two daughters. The name of the older one was Leah, and the name of the younger one was Rachel. Okay. So now let's switch to the Hebrew here for, for a moment. Ula Levin, Shtebanos, Levin had two daughters, Shem HaGadola Leah, V'Shem HaKatana Rachel. So, so now listen to this. And this is brought down by in, the, uh, in this wonderful Chumash that uh, Chabad puts out, um, which I highly recommend. They've got a few different versions. I don't know what the identifying name of this one is, but it's not the Gutnik one. So if you ask for the one that's not the Gutnik one, you'll get this one. <laughs> and uh, not that that one is, is, is uh, bad, but this one has um, a lot of different commentaries, so I'm, I'm drawing from this one right now. Now, the, the, the Rebbe brings down the following, that, that Leah and Rachel correlated with the name of Hashem, with the holiest name of Hashem, the Yudke Vavke, in a very unique way. So let's just take a step back and, and look again at the Pasuk. Ulalavin Shtebanos, and Lavin had two daughters, Shem Hagadola, the name of the elder. Now, you can, you can uh, look at this word again, Hagadola, and you can break it down into two parts. Hey, Gado, the big hey. And the second part of that is Hakatana. That's for Rachel. You can break that down into Hey Katana. So what's the big Hey and what's the small Hey? Hey Hagadola means the big Hey. Hey Hakatana means the small Hey. So if we go back to the name of Hashem, which is Yud and Hey and Vav and Hey, the first Hey is the big Hey. So in other words, the Chumash itself is telling us that Leah correlates with the first hey in the name of Hashem. And Rachel correlates with the second hey in the name of Hashem. And we know that the first hey stands for Bina. And the second hey stands for Machus. So, now with this in mind, Bina means like a very, very deep level of understanding. Machus means basically this earthly dimension. Okay, because as we go from the Yud to the He to the Vav to the He, we're going from the highest regions of the heavens all the way down to this dimension, to, 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 to this plane. So the bottom He correlates with, with this plane. So now, with this in mind, we can understand on a deeper level why it says later on that Jacob loved Rachel more. Why did Jacob love Rachel more? Okay, so again, we're now talking on a, 
a, a different level altogether. We're not talking about personalities and we're not talking about, you know, relationships right now. We're talking in the, the, the deepest sense right now. Because the mission of the Jewish people is to reveal the oneness of God in this dimension, in this world. And Rachel correlates with the bottom hay of the name of Hashem, Hayakatana, which stands for Malchus, which is this world. So Jacob, remember, Jacob, his name can be broken down into two parts also. Yud Akev. The Yud of Hashem stands for the top of the Yud Kevavke, the highest emanations of godliness. Akev means heal, which means the bottom part of your body. So Jacob's mission is to take the light of Hashem and to bring it all the way down into this world. So who will be closer to that mission is Rachel. Because Rachel stands for the bottom hay of Hashem's name, which means this dimension. So that's why it says he loved Rachel more. Because she was more in keeping with the culmination of his mission in this world. Again, to reveal the oneness of God in this dimension. So, of course, Leah plays a huge part in that. This is nothing, this, and this is, God forbid, to diminish Leah. But, but it shows you maybe a perspective of why Rachel, in Jacob's mind anyway, had, in a way, first priority, since he gravitated toward her first. That was the, you know, and if you think about it, like, we talk about, you know, like when the Torah was revealed at Mount Sinai, it was sort of like heaven and earth kissing. It's like the kissing of heaven and earth. And what, what's the first thing that Jacob does when he sees Rachel? He kisses her. Even before he introduces himself, he kisses her. So it's like the kissing of heaven and earth. Um, so I want to tell you something I heard um, from Rabbi Sitron. And it was one from, the, from one of the Hasidic masters. I don't remember who. Um, and it, it deals with how, how the confusion under the chuppah took place between Rachel and, 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 and Leah. Like, how did it happen? So, so they knew uh, Yaakov and, and, and Rachel, Jacob and Rachel knew from the outset that Lovin was going to try to pull a fast one. And they knew that in advance. Okay. And so they made a secret sign between them. The question is, what was the sign? Right? And the second question is, Leah, remember, Leah gives birth to Yehuda. Yehuda is the progenitor of David HaMelech, which is the Messianic line. So how could it be that Leah participated willingly in this subterfuge? That's the next question. So, so first, what was the sign that they had between them so that this wouldn't take place? And the second question is, how is it that Leah participated in this? Or what, better phrase, what was the nature of her participation in this? to explain uh, what happened. So, so here's what I learned. Something very, very interesting. So again, they knew a switch was going to take place. 
So, Jacob and Rachel said the following. Since it's going to be Leah under the chuppah, because Lovin is going to absolutely ensure that it's going to be Leah under the chuppah, I will ask her her name. She will say that it's Rachel. Because that's going to be the trick. She'll say that it's Rachel. So here's what we should arrange, says Jacob to Rachel. When I ask the name, the sign that it's really you, Rachel, is the password, so to speak, is you tell me it's Leah. Why? Because Leah, when she's under the chuppah, when I ask her her name, is not going to say Leah. So if you say Leah, then I'll know for sure that it's you, Rachel. Because Leah is going to say the opposite. She's going to do the bidding of her father and say that it's Rachel. Which it's not going to be. That's going to be proof that it's Leah. If I hear that it's Rachel under the chuppah, that's proof that it's Leah trying to trick me. Okay? So, Rachel has, Rachmanus has mercy on her sister. And so she gives her over the secret sign. To say, under the chuppah, the password is Leah. Say that it's Leah when you're under the chuppah. Now, by the way, okay, let me just finish this thought. So, Leah gets under the chuppah and Yaakov says, what's your name? And Leah says, Leah. Right? So now, Jacob's thinking, it's Rachel. Right? So everything's good. So then, listen to this part. Leah then says, No, it's Leah. And Jacob, thinking that she's, that it's just Rachel giving the password again, says, I got it. I know. But Leah was not participating in the subterfuge. She was not trying to trick Yaakov. That's the answer. How could she have tried to trick the mother Moshiach? How is she trying to trick Yaakov? Here's the point. She wasn't. She says, no, it's really Leah. And Yaakov says, I got it. I got it. Thinking that it's Rachel emphatically trying to give over the password. So, so here you see something very, very amazing. Which is, if something's beshared, it's beshared. Here's Leah pleading with Yaakov that it's really me. And Yaakov somehow just seeing it as further, further confirmation that it's what he has in mind. It's uh, interpersonal relationships are very mysterious. Now, now listen to this. There are there are uh, There are children born from this union. Oh, I know what I want to say before. I want to just tell you something about Malava Malka, but also about being the mother of Mashiach. Let me just make this mother of Mashiach point. See, I had a question, and I'm going to offer an answer. So my question was this. If, how could it be that Mashiach comes from Rachel and Leah? Because if 
if Yaakov's first choice, really, was Rachel, I mean, I'm sorry, I, 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 I think I may have said the wrong name, sir. How could it be that Mashiach comes between, comes from the union between Rachel, uh, between Yaakov and Leah? Because it would seem like, since Mashiach is the greatest manifestation of love and oneness and completion and everything like that, it would seem like it would come from between Jacob and Rachel. Right? That would be the first choice. That, that, I, I don't know if you agree with the question, but that, that was my question. It would seem like that would be, since they had a fuller love seemingly, so seemingly that, that the, the, the product of the ultimate love should have come from that fuller love. That was the question. So now remember the following. You know, the sages say that our mitzvahs are our children. And as much as it's a beautiful blessing and a wonderful thing to have physical children, everybody has a lot of children. You know, in the, in the greater sense, our mitzvahs, our deeds, our good deeds are our children. And they have a life to them. Because, you know, it says in Pirkei Avos, if, if someone does a, a mitzvah that they create an, an angel which advocates for them and defends them, or if they do an Avera, they do something wrong, they create a, you know, a, 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 a negative spiritual entity. And, and, you know, so you've got this idea of angels, demons, whatever it is being created, and it, it sounds very mystical. But if you just think of it on just a purely logical way, you see, when we do an action, we emit an aspect of life force and energy. If you hug someone with love, you feel that there's some energy leaving you. If you, like, shake hands with someone sometimes, and it's like a, you, you feel that there's energy being communicated. You know, and there's zillions of examples of this. On the other side, if you get very angry, you also know that there's energy leaving you, but from the negative side. And so this idea of angels or demons or whatever it is, I mean, that's, that's, just, a, that's just a terminology. You get, get past that for a moment. The point is, is that there's energy that has a level of integrity to it that, that lasts beyond the action itself. And it has a life force and continues on in this world. You know, to give a very simple, easy example of this, you smile to someone, and then sometimes that causes them to smile. And then that will cause someone else to smile. So, you know, just that's a very easy way of, of just picturing what I'm talking about. Or the other side of that, you yell at someone. Now someone's in a bad mood, and they have less patience for the next person. And so, again, domino effects all, all around. So this idea that our mitzvahs are our children isn't just like, kind of like a hallmark greeting card thought. You know, it's a, it's a real thing that we give birth to energy that has a life in this world and continues on. Okay, that's a real thing. So imagine what it meant for Rachel to be so concerned with the feelings of her sister she didn't know that, oh yeah, and then a couple weeks later, and by the way, it was a very, very short time later that, that Yaakov marries Rachel. It, 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 
we're, we're tempted through a misreading of the, of the verses to think that he had to wait seven years. That, that, that wasn't it. He gets her pretty much right away, then he has to pay off the debt. You know? So, so anyway, but Rachel didn't know that she's going to get, get, uh, get Yaakov. In fact, she probably had every right to think that, that she was going to end up with Asaph. Which was, which was what Leah had been thinking beforehand. Because they said, this family has twins, meaning Rachel and Leah, and this family has twins, Yaakov and, and Asaph, and their family members, which was the tradition at that time that you pretty much stayed within the family. So it was natural that the oldest would marry the eldest. So Leah, it says, had tender eyes from crying, because she's thinking her whole life, I'm marrying this bum, you know, like, like evil, basically. And she cried her eyes out for years, to the point where it actually physically affected her, 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 her appearance. But imagine how effective those prayers were. I mean, that they just changed everything. They changed everything. And she ends up marrying Yaakov. But again, the point that I'm making here is that Rachel, when she gave the signs over to Leah, gave over everything. She gave her entire life away. I mean, that was her perception at the time. She gave her entire life away as an act of love and compassion to her sister. So let me ask you this. If that's a mitzvah, and a mitzvah is a child. What is the name of that child? And I'll tell you the name of that child. Mashiach. That's the name of that child. So if you, if you want to say, how is it that Rachel and Yaakov didn't give birth to Mashiach? My answer is that they did give birth to Mashiach. Because the outcome of that mitzvah was the wedding between Yaakov and Leah, which physically produces Mashiach. But it's no less the child of the action that Rachel did. So here we see Rachel on this level is the mother of Mashiach. So, so now Leah has, has children right away. An awesome thing. She has Ruvain and she has Shimon and then she has Levi. I just want to Focus for a moment on Levi, because I heard a Torah from in the name of the Avnei Nazar, who was the, the son-in-law of the Kutzker Rebbe, and um, it's one of my favorite Torahs, and uh, and it goes like this. You see, the passage says. Um, Here it is. It's, uh, it's uh, chapter 29, verse 34, if you want to see it. Again she conceived and bore a son and declared, This time my husband will become attached to me, for I have borne him three sons. Therefore, he called his name Levi. All right? Actually, it's very striking that it says, Therefore, he called his name. You know? 
So seemingly Yaakov was naming these children, or perhaps it was Hashem. Maybe that's the he here. Sometimes they learn it both ways. But um, but there's a play on words um, going on here, which is that you see it says it says uh, this time my husband will become attached to me. Okay. You'll, it's a bit of a tongue twister, sorry. Yilave. Okay? That means attached. And that word contains the word levi. So, so the word levi means attached. Okay? But, but yilave is basically the same words as malave. When we talk about a malava malka which I'll explain what that is in a moment. So again, this is the thought of the Avne Nezer, what I'm, what I'm telling you right now. So what is a Malava Malka? That's um, what they call the fourth meal of Shabbos. See, Shabbos really has three meals. Um, but there's such a thing called the fourth meal of Shabbos. The fourth meal of Shabbos is after we, after we finish with Shabbos, again we make another meal. And this meal is very... There's a lot to say about it. Um, it's a very intense, unbelievable intersection between the holy and the mundane. And interestingly, it's funny, this what I'm about to tell you is a, a very mystical point, and yet, you know who brings it? The, um, the Mishnah Burr, which is the straight, you know, straight halacha, brings this point, which is that there's one bone in our body, which even, you know, it says that the very righteous don't decompose in the grave. By the way, it also says that if you say a Devar Torah in the name of someone who's deceased, like right now we're saying over the, the Torah of the Avne Nazar, his mouth actually moves in the grave. You know? I often wondered if you can extend this idea to singing. That if we sing, say, one of the melodies of Reb Shlomo Karlbach, if his mouth sings in the grave. In which case, he's singing 24 hours a day. You know, because somewhere, somewhere in the world, someone's singing one of his melodies, you know? So anyway, but, um, but for the rest of us, who don't have the merit of not decomposing, you know, our we go to bones and then eventually the bones go to powder or to dust. But there's one part of our body which never actually decomposes. And this is called the loose bone. And they say it's in the back of the neck. Now, interestingly, and the Mishnah Burr brings this, there's one thing only that feeds and strengthens the loose bone. And that is the food that we eat during a Malava Malka. And I have an explanation for that. Um, maybe we'll get to it. Why that, what the divine mechanics of that uh, is. Uh, but, but the point is, is that, you see, seven, in, the number seven in this world stands for creation. The number eight in this world stands for that which is what we say, Lamala Minateva, that which transcends nature, which, is, which, which goes beyond, which breaks through. 
And sort of like the Messianic era correlates in, in many ways with the number eight. So, you see, the thing is, is that after we finish Shabbos, remember Shabbos is Yom Shvi, the seventh day of the week. You know, I heard from Reb Shlomo, Shabbos has two names. One is Shabbos, one is Yom Shvi, the seventh day. So, which is higher? So, he says the higher is Yom Shvi, the seventh day. Why? Because Shabbos just means, on some level, you've got the week and you've got Shabbos. So what's Shabbos? Shabbos is not the week. Okay? Whereas the idea of Yom Shvi, the seventh day, is that all of creation is evolving toward the crown of spirituality. And so Shabbos, as the seventh day, represents the culmination of the week. Not something that's other than the week or divorced from the week, but the culmination of the week itself. And that name is expressed as it being the seventh day. So now, what happens after we finish the seventh day? After you finish Shabbos? You reach a fork in the road. Now, most people start again with the first day of the week. Ah, but the Malava Malka, making the fourth meal of Shabbos, remember, Shabbos only has three meals, making the fourth meal of Shabbos gives you the opportunity from going from the seventh day of the week to the level eight. Not dropping down to the bottom and starting the process again, but transcendence. You see, Hashem, we said, oftentimes we think of Hashem in terms of this four-letter name of Hashem, the yud ke vav The bottom letter, He, we said stands for Rachel, and also stands for this world. Right? Meaning that the first three letters of Hashem's name, the Yud and He and Vav, represent this level still of transcendence, before God's light actually condenses and, and materializes into the physical universe itself. So again, Shabbos is called the taste of the world to come. So Shabbos is almost like we're not in this world. That's the three meals of Shabbos. That's the first three letters of Hashem's name. Then we get to the fourth meal of Shabbos. This meal that we make after Shabbos is already over. So the Malava Malka correlates with the fourth meal of Shabbos, with the bottom he of Hashem's name, with the physical universe. Meaning to say, we go from Shabbos, which is a taste of the world to come, and we bring that energy with the Malava Malka, the fourth meal, the bottom letter of Hashem's name, and we bring that energy into this world. That's the idea. And that's the idea that the loose bone, which is fed from the food of the Malava Malka, that the loose bone itself is that agent that's used for our resurrection in the time of Tachias Amesim. In other words, that's the one aspect of ourself that doesn't disintegrate. That, that's the physical point of eternality within our physical body. And that's what's nourished by taking the light of transcendence and bringing it down into this world, which is what the Malava Malka represents. Now, by the way, that's a great deal for eating a banana Saturday night. Because that's what it boils down to. <laughs> you can have fruit, 
By the way, I, I heard from Reb Shlomo that it's a segula for parnosa. It's a blessing for livelihood to wash and have bread Saturday night. That's the real formal way of doing it. The, if you can't do that, to have a kazayas, that means, you know, like a, a hunk of cake, basically. You know, like an ounce of cake. That's better. But a lot of times, you know, you've just had three big meals and you, you, just, you can't eat anything else. So a piece of fruit is pretty much the minimum. That's, that, that's your minimum, you know, eternal nourishment. You know, so, so try to do that. And by the way, while we're talking about all these concepts, let me just add one more. It's a very special custom, the Gemara talks about it, of having a hot drink Saturday night. And it calls it a refuah, that it's a healing. And I can tell you, I, I really try to be careful with this. And I always feel very good. I actually feel it. Something very positive happening whenever I have a hot drink Saturday night after Shabbos. Um, anyway, I'd like to offer this following explanation of, of why that would be a healer. You know. So, so again, building on everything that we've been saying about the Malava Malka and the loose bone and all the rest, In terms of the laws of kashrus, keeping kosher, if I have, we, we have a principle that basically heat through wetness transfers essence. And I'll give you a concrete example of that. If I have, say, a kosher plate, okay, that's, let's say, room temperature. It's, it's just, it's not hot. And let's say I have a hot, non-kosher fork, and it's wet. And I put the hot, non-kosher fork that's wet against the kosher plate. Through the agency of this liquid, the essence or this taste, which is what they call the glios, which are in this fork, go into the plate. There's sort of like this conductive, you know, element, which is the liquid, and then the essence of the taste of this fork that's inside this fork from eating whatever non-kosher tray food, whatever it is, kind of enters into the plate. So, heat combined with wetness transfers essence. That's a, just in terms of the physics of kashrus, that's kind of, kind of what's going on. Okay. So again, we said the Gomorrah says if you have a hot drink Saturday night, that that's a, that that's a rafua, that's like a heel. Why? Why would that be? So, based on this, I want to say the following. Which is that, remember, Saturday night is that intersection between Shabbos and the week. Between heaven and earth, if you will. And what do you have in a hot drink? You have that conductive material, that hot, wet thing, which transfers essence. So when you have the hot drink Saturday night, essentially what you're doing is you're taking Shabbos, the energy of Shabbos, and searing it and transferring it into the week. And isn't that the ultimate healing? Turning the week into Shabbos? It's the ultimate healing. So now, let's get back to the thought of the Avne Nazar. Again, Leah has a third child, Levi, which means to 
which means to be attached to. She says, now I've had this third child, Levi, my husband will be attached to me. Is it a boy? It's a boy, yeah. So, so, so this word, Malava Malka, which is this special meal that we've been discussing, that you have Saturday night, which brings Shabbos into the week, okay? And brings eternity to a person. Because that's what feeds your loose bone, which you're resurrected from, which is eternal life. Right? So, so Malava Malka means to escort the queen. The queen being Shabbos, the, the energy, the presence of Shabbos. So in other words, instead of saying, okay, Shabbos is over, on to the week, that's kind of like kicking out the energy of Shabbos. Is that, is that the third meal or fourth meal? I haven't even difference. So we're, we're, we're saying that the Malava Malka, this is after Shabbos, so this would be the fourth meal of Shabbos. Yeah. So, 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 so the classic way of translating Malava Malka is you're escorting the energy of Shabbos kind of out. It's a more dignified, respectful way to leave the presence of Shabbos like, for instance, when you leave the presence of a shul, you don't walk with your back out. You turn around, and you don't want to turn your back to the ark. You turn around before you leave a shul, and you, you step out like that. That's the, that's the proper way to do it. If you leave the presence of a, of a Talmud Chacham, of a, of a, of a scholar, you, 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 you walk out like that. That's, a, that's, a, that's, that's derech that's respect. So the same thing with Shabbos. The Malava Malka is... You're, 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 you're departing in a, in a, in a way that, that honors the presence that you're leaving. Okay. That's the normal way of learning it. Now listen to this. This is, this is far out. So the Avne Nazar says, no, it's the opposite of what I just said. It's the opposite. We said that Leah says, now I've had this other child, now my, my husband will be attached to me. That's what Levi means. Malava, which contains the word Levi, means that, you think I'm escorting out Shabbos with this fourth meal of Shabbos? I'm holding on for dear life. <laughs> I'm not letting Shabbos go. I'm hanging on. That's what it is. You think I'm walking it out the door? I'm locking the door shut. No, you're staying here with me, Shabbos. So, a very different way of, of understanding what's going on there. So, so I'll just tell you something. Just as kind of like a P.S. We're, we're just going to wrap it up here. But I just, I just thought that it just, it just, uh, let's see. What, what time do we have to, what time do we have to go? Oh, so we have a little more time. Okay, so, okay, so then let me, let me add something else, okay? Well, let me just throw in this P.S. anyway, just because the, it, it says in this, in this Chumash here, the, 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 uh, the Chumash that I mentioned earlier, a Torah from the Ari, something very interesting, that if you take the first letter of the, of the four wives of, of, of Yaakov, it spells out the word barzel. Um, and that means iron. 
and and it correlates with a, a passage, I don't have it in front of me right now, but it's talking about iron from the earth. So that the, you know, so that the, the wives of Jacob, the, our mothers, are, are compared to iron in the best way, like the, the essence of the earth. And I haven't uh, done justice to it. But it just seemed curious because just, again, I offer this as a, just as a PS on top of a PS. But women need iron. In their diets, you know? And it's just curious that, you know, the, the embodiment of femininity, you know, the, the four wives of Jacob, that the Ari is bringing, that their name spells the word iron. Just, again, just as, a, just as an aside, you know, take her to leave it, as they say, but um, just kind of something curious. Um, okay. So now... I want to share with you uh, a Torah that, that, that I learned from Rabbi Wolfson um, that is talking about um, the revelation of oneness of God in this world. And we're in a period of the year right now. It's a very interesting period. It's the first 24 days of the month of Kislev. And then the 25th day of Kislev is Hanukkah. Hanukkah is lighting up the darkness. Now that means that, and if you look outside, at least in this hemisphere anyway, this is the darkest time of the year. And so, so, so right now we're, so to speak, in the heart of darkness. The first 24 days of the month of Kislev, before the light of Hanukkah is coming to illuminate all the dark places. So with this in mind, Rabbi Wolfson says something very interesting about the... And by the way, um, so, says something very amazing about this number 24. And I'm just giving you a very small piece of what he said, but it's very interesting. So, there's a name of Hashem, which stands for Hashem's mastery over creation, over the physical world. Right? Remember... God has mastery over the entirety of the universe. But there are different names of Hashem which correlate over His mastery over different aspects of creation. Of course, we're talking about the one, the one God of the world, the one true God, creator of heavens and earth. But, um, but when we refer to how He interacts and reveals Himself in different ways, sometimes we'll assign a name that gives us a clue to how He functions within Within that, within that dimension. So, this name of God, it's pronounced Adonai, but it's spelled Aleph, Dalud, Nun, and Yud. And again, it means mastery. And in fact, I think it's that same spelling in Israel today, in, in modern Hebrew, people say Adoni, which is the way in, in Israel that you say the word Sir. You know, it's a respectful term, but really it means master. Right? So, so God's mastery over creation. And in this sense, it's, it's, it's very um, similar to the name Elohim, which again means God's mastery over nature. Okay? Within borders. Okay. Now listen to this. Rabbi Wolfson brings down that 
that there are 24 permutations that can be done with this name Adoni, Adonai, I'm sorry, Aleph Dalad Nuninyud. Meaning to say that if you wanted to arrange the letters in a unique way, there are 24 different combinations that you can do with this name of Hashem. That's just simple math. So what's compelling about that is that in the, in the canon of Torah, in, meaning to say Tanakh, meaning to say Torah, Nevi'im, Ksuvim, right? There are 24 books of the Torah. So there's 24 permutations in terms of this name of God, God's mastery over this world, and there are 24 books of the Torah. Torah meaning, we're talking about the Torah in its, its, its largest sense right now, in terms of the true revealed word of God. Which means that for each permutation, there's a book that correlates with it. So Rabbi Wolfson, one of his themes, ongoing themes, is as we're getting to the end of history, and as we're getting closer to Mashiach, what is that final chapter, what is that final aspect that we have to overcome, the final test, he says, is a muna that correlates with the tenth test of Abraham. It's another microcosm. So, what is the book that, that, that correlates, if you will, with the, with the end? Or with God reaching down and revealing Himself in the lowest aspect, in the darkest aspect of our existence. Again, correlating with these 24 days of Kislev, which are the darkest days of the year. What correlates with the end? So the last book of the Torah is called Divrei Hayamim. And what that is, is basically, is a, a, a chronology of David HaMelech and of his line. So, so again, so that's the, that's the messianic line. So, so the end, so to speak, is the culmination of history expressed as the kingship of David and Melech being revealed. Now, amazingly, so that's the 24th book, right? Correlating with the last level of God's revelation within creation. Now, amazingly, David is almost always spelled throughout the entire Torah, Dalit, Vav, Dalit. That's how you spell David, right? However, there is an alternate spelling of David. And it doesn't appear that often, but it appears throughout this 24th book of the Torah, Divrei HaYamin, which is about David. And how is it spelled there? Dalit, Vav, Yud, Dalit. Now, the gematria of that is 24. Dalit is 4. Vav is 6. That's 10. Yud is 10. So that's 20. Dalit is 4. 24. So, in other words, this incredible expression that God's mastery goes all the way till the end and that the culmination of that is the revelation of Malchus based David, of Mashiach. Now, now I want to share one more thing, which is, which is a principle that we mentioned last week. This idea that the Shekhinah, 
God's revealed presence doesn't descend below ten tefachim. A tefach is a uh, Torah measurement, which means a hand's breadth. That, that, that the Shekhinah doesn't go lower than ten tefachim. In other words, there's this space from the ground, ten handbreadths up, and that basically God's presence doesn't descend into this realm. Now, I'm looking more into what that means exactly, because it seems a little, seems a little abstract since we know that God's presence fills the entire universe, of course. So what does it mean that the Shekhinah doesn't descend below ten tefachim? By the way, if you want to look this up, this is in Gomorrah Sukkah 5a. And they talk about it a lot there. Okay? Well, first of all, where do we learn this principle out from? And a very amazing place that we learn it out from. The sages say that the Ark of the Covenant, which held the Luchos, which held the, the Ten Commandments, the Golden Ark, was ten tefachim high. And it says that God spoke to Moshe from atop the Ark. So that's above ten tefachim, ten handbreadths. In between the wingspans of the angels. So there was two golden angels atop the golden ark, and they had their wings, and there was a little area in between their wings, and that's where the voice of Hashem emerged in this world. So now, I just want to share with you, and we'll end with this, a teaching from Rabbeinu Bachaya. Something very interesting. He says that the distance between the two wingspans through which Hashem spoke to Moshe was the size, approximately, approximately the size of three parts of the body. The tongue, the heart, and the male organ. And if you think of it, it's a thing to, to meditate on, really, because it means that these are agencies or divine portholes, if you will, through which God communicates His will into the world. And, and the whole mission of Hanukkah is, is to take this area below Ten Tefachim, below where God reveals Himself, where, below where the Shekhinah becomes manifest, which means this aspect of creation where the oneness of God hasn't yet been revealed, and to light that up. Because the custom in many places is to light the menorah on the ground. Maybe you put a little pedestal out of respect to the Gomorrah, but, or out of, to the menorah, rather. But you do it in the doorpost opposite the mezuzah. So it's down below. And the idea is that even in this realm, where God's oneness isn't yet revealed, the Hanukkah lights go... And the Hanukkah's lights are lighting up the darkness in literally the darkest place. And finally, we say that we start lighting up the Hanukkah menorah in this space on the 25th. The Zohar says that there are 25 letters in the word, in the phrase, Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. So the 25th of Kislev, which is lighting up the darkest aspects of the world, Revealing the oneness of God in the darkest places correlates with the 25 letters of Shema Yisrael, which is declaring Hashem's oneness throughout the entirety of the world. So, 
We'll stop with this, and we should just be blessed that each one of us should be Hanukkah candles all year round, lighting up the darkness wherever we go. Yeah.